The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning, y'all. Good to see you. Today's scripture reading, thank you. Today's scripture reading is from Acts 24, 1 through 27. And after five days, the high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since through your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this all with gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all of these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But I confess this to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out, while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Luke. It's great to have you here with us today. Let me begin with a word of prayer as we uh, examine the text uh, in Acts. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you've given it to us. 
Help us by your Spirit, not only to understand it, but help us apply it to our lives and help us to be shaped by it so that we day by day resemble your Son more and more. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. The passage that Luke just read for us a moment ago uh, is a part of a larger narrative in Acts, and it's in the context of uh, a courtroom trial. I don't know if you are at all familiar with the long-running show, which was on uh, and lives on in syndication and through numerous spin-offs. It's the show called Law and Order. Uh, for a long time, this is my favorite show, and each episode began with a preamble that said, "In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate but equally important groups." the police who investigate the crime, and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. Yeah. I'm ashamed of myself for asking them to do that, but uh, that was a prominent sound effect that was used at the beginning of the show and all throughout the show, and it's a blending of sounds that includes the sound of a judge's gavel and the closing of the prison doors representing the two sides of justice. And, and, and as I read through the passage in Acts, I couldn't help but think of law and order. We, we've seen a system of policing which brought Paul into custody now, and now we're reading about Paul in the context of a trial. Now, I don't know how much experience you've had in a courtroom. For some of you, courtroom has a negative connotation. To others, it represents the, the place of your vocation, and still others, it represents a place where, where justice has been served. I've had very little experience in, in courtrooms. Uh, I've been in the courtroom for jury duty. Uh, it was during the summer when I was in college, uh, and uh, I was very eager to be on, on jury duty because at the time, it was summertime in Atlanta, and I worked a landscaping job, and day in and day out, pushing a mower up and down acres and acres of grass, it was much more appealing to me to go to a courtroom, an air-conditioned courtroom. Yes, I'm, I'm ready to do my civic duty, and I got picked. I was never so glad to do that. All that being said, the goal of the courtroom is to bring about justice, a place where justice is to be carried out. And they say that justice is blind, but we'll see sometimes, as we see in our passage today, Lady Justice removes her blindfold and the scales tip, and they cater to other interests besides justice. So today we're going to look at the anatomy of a first century court case, and we're going to examine three different figures participating in this trial. We're, to, we're going to examine the prosecutor, whose name is Tertullus, the defendant whom we know as the Apostle Paul, and then we're going to pick apart the response of the judge, Felix, who is the governor of Judea and Samaria at the time of, of this account. So Tertullus, Paul, and Felix, you can think of those as your, your three headings for today. But to catch you up a bit, again, we're in the middle of a larger narrative here, uh, a, a narrative in the book of Acts. And where we last left off in chapter 23, the governor of Judea and Samaria, again, whose name is Felix, received the letter from the Roman tribune by the name of Claudius Lysias. And in that letter, he detailed for the governor that he had the apostle Paul in custody. Now, what did Paul do to cause him to be arrested and, and end up on trial. Well, Paul, who's chiefly known as the apostle who was to minister to the Gentiles, the one who was to take the gospel to the known world, outside of Jerusalem, decided through the prompting of the Holy Spirit to come back to Jerusalem. And almost immediately after his arrival, he meets trouble. 
He's in trouble with the Jewish people who believe he's saying and doing things that are contrary to the law of Moses. Paul has the Jewish crowd so worked up that they want to kill him. Now, but here's the problem. Here's the problem for those Jewish people that are trying to carry out capital punishment against Paul. Jerusalem, as is the case with most every other place in the, in the world at this time, is under Roman rule. And the period we're talking about here is the period of Roman peace, the Pax Romana. This is a period of, of unprecedented peace. There were no major wars for about 200 years, but calling it peace is a bit of a misnomer. Why? Because they achieved their peace through a fair amount of violence. Be peaceful to one another, they said, or we'll kill you. So you had Caesar at the top, and then below him you had lesser authorities like governors, and below them lesser authorities like tribunes, and, and within each layer of authority, there was a directive that said, your job as a Roman official is to keep the peace, or else. So all along these layers of authority, their motives for keeping the peace were not really for the sake of the people. It was, it was more about self-preservation. If these people get out of hand, I'm going to have to answer for it. So, so this is why when Paul gets in trouble with a group of Jews in Jerusalem, the Roman authorities are playing along because they don't want to upset the mob. But at the same time, they don't want to give Paul over to the mob because it could be re reported back to the top and that there was a violent protest and someone was killed. So, so the job of these authorities along the way is to keep the peace. It was, as if, it was as if they were saying, I really don't care who's wrong or who's right, especially as far as your religious customs are concerned. I'm not interested in justice. I want you to play nice and make me look good. Now, as you might be able to tell, this mindset has an erosive effect on justice. When there are selfish motives involved beyond determining right from wrong, it makes carrying out justice impossible. And this is the major problem for, for people like, well, like people like you and me. Because you and I were born with a sin nature which always favors self-preservation. By nature, we're selfish. We're self-preserving people. And even after we've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, we're justified before the Father, we still struggle with remaining in indwelling sin. We still have an impulse to appease that selfish, self-preserving nature. And this is what we're seeing here. The tribune is telling the governor, I've got someone coming your way. It's probably best that you put him through that trial. Let, let's pass him off to the next person up on the totem pole so I don't have to deal with him. So Governor Felix agrees. And he tells the tribune, yes, I'll try him here, but, but let's wait until his accusers arrive so that they can give testimony to what it is that Paul has done. Because to this point, to this point on the Roman side of the world, even they're still saying, well, whatever he's done is not deserving of death but we've got to at least try. We've got to at least try to give the appearance that we're being fair. Our passage begins, after five days, Paul remains in custody with, with Felix, and, and, and the high priest, one of, one of Paul's accusers, arrives, and he brings with him a lawyer to lay out his charges against Paul before the governor. This lawyer's name, once again, was Tertullus, a Roman advocate, a Roman advocate representing the interests of the Jews who were eager to see Paul killed. 
And this lawyer begins to lay the case before Felix, and he begins, oh, most excellent Felix. Now, I want to stop right there because I want you to notice the dripping grossness there. Oh, most excellent Felix. I feel like nowadays, the automobile buying experience has, has smoothed out quite a bit. There, there's so much information out there, and it's literally available at your fingertips. It's forced the car companies and used car sellers to be more transparent and straightforward with things like pricing and the history of the vehicle, because now you can get the full car, car history, the dealer invoice, the vehicle's ratings, and all that compiled together within a few minutes. It wasn't so long ago that if you wanted to go buy a car, you had to get all psyched up. You had to go ready yourself to, to go and put on your game face and be prepared to go into a battle that could take all day long. And the car salesmen, they, they had all kinds of tricks they would use. I'll tell you what, here's what I'm going to offer you. And, and I could get in real trouble for doing this. You've heard this, I know, right? This deal is too good, so please don't tell anybody. You'd better take advantage of this offer today. Uh-huh. But to me, the absolute worst was when the salesman tried to flatter me you, you seem like a smart guy. You seem like you know a good value when you see it. Or even worse, right after I finished college, I, I was looking at a Jeep, like a ragtop Jeep, the classic kind, soft top. It was a nice-looking vehicle, and the salesman told me, if you buy this car, by the end of the week, you're going to have all the girls begging you for a ride. I said, I don't believe that. But I bought the Jeep. And it didn't work out. <laughs> you see, he was trying to flatter me. He was trying to get me to focus on something besides the actual car itself. And instead, he was doing what? Getting me to focus on me. This is the same sin going all the way back to the garden. Do you want to be like God? If you focus on yourself and what it gets you, it all starts to sound pretty appealing. Tertullus is telling the governor, Oh, most excellent Felix, since through you we enjoy much peace, that's a joke. That's a joke. Felix had the least peaceful term of any Roman administrator up until this time. He'd put down several insurrections with such indescribable brutality that the Jewish population was terrified of him. And here they have a representative saying, Oh, most excellent Felix, such a peaceful person. They're trying to flatter him. The representative is trying to flatter him. Speaking of the peace they had enjoyed through him, it's a lie. This is what the Bible tells us about flattery. Proverbs 26, 28, we read, a lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin. Do you see the link the Bible places between flattery and lying? It makes no distinction. If you use a flattering tongue for selfish gain, you're breaking the ninth commandment. When you speak with flattery like this, you're attempting to make the person you're speaking to to make a conclusion about something under a false reality. And someone who makes decisions under a pretense of falsehood will be damaged by it and will bring others down with it. To be honest, again, my wife, for instance, has no problem looking at me and saying, you don't look good in that. Try something else. 
What harm could it do if she just said, you look great, go with that? Now, she's probably saved me, to be, to be honest, from quite a bit of embarrassment because she chooses honesty over flattery, sometimes a lot. And you know what else? She's honest with me in moments like that. When she does that, it lends credibility to her statements when she says things like, you know what? What you said to that person, it came across as hurtful. A word like that is much harder to say than words of flattery. But in the end, they're the right things to say because they're reflective of the one who is the embodiment of truth. You and I, in all circumstances, are to be reflections of the one who is the truth. You and I are called to be truth bearers in all circumstances. Tertullus, the prosecutor, continues beyond the flattery, and he begins to lay three charges against Paul. Notice what he starts with. He starts with flattery, and then it unfolds into full-on lies. He accuses Paul of stirring up riots. That's not true. Second, he accuses Paul of being a, a ringleader of a Nazarene sect. That's distorting Judaism. It, it's an incomplete statement, which is also a lie. And thirdly, Tertullus accuses Paul of disturbing the Roman peace. They're saying he's disturbed our religious peace, which will ultimately disturb the Roman peace. And as evidence to that, he accuses Paul of desecrating the temple. It's lie on top of lie on top of lie. That began with the word of flattery. The strategy here for Tertullus and the Jews, he, he represents, is to speak falsehood to achieve a result that works in their favor. Now, just for a moment... Just for a moment, put yourself in Paul's shoes. He's in a courtroom, so, uh, so to speak. He's before the Roman authority, and he's facing accusation that is not true. How do you respond? I think if we're being honest, our impulse is to bow up. How dare you? And we do that because we believe our character is being attacked, and it can cause serious injury to our reputation. And isn't that something we should want? Shouldn't we want to be known as someone with good character and, and a good reputation? Another proverb, which comes from chapter 22, verse 1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. So yes, of course we should seek to protect our reputation and be known as people of good character. Certainly but it is your actions. It is your actions that determine whether or not you're, you're a person of good character. It, it, it is the things you do that give you a good name. For example, if you told me after the service you heard Pastor Todd Teller trash-talking somebody, I wouldn't believe you. Why? Because as long as I've known him, he's dedicated himself to building people up. That's the good name and good character that goes before him to the point that if someone brings forth a lie that states otherwise, he doesn't need to bow up. He doesn't need to say, how dare you? Is he capable of sin? Yes, right? <laughs> He'll tell you so himself, and he's quick to repent. Your response to your sin also speaks to your character. Now, Pastor Todd talks trash to me all the time but I do believe it to be in jest. Jesus, I dare say, we can all agree, is a man of good character. He had a good reputation. He was the fulfillment of Proverbs 22.1 that says, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. That's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
when they lied about him, when they brought him forth with uh, false accusations about him, how did he respond? Well, it looked a lot like what we see from Paul in our passage. Let's look at Paul's response and see how he reflects the character of Christ. First of all, how does Paul begin his defense? Is it loaded with flattery? He's speaking to the same governor, the same judge that Tertullus is speaking to. It's a common practice to engage in, in this flattery before a prominent person during this era. So what does Paul do? What does he say? His greeting is void of flattery. He's polite, yes, but he doesn't engage in flattery. Verse 10, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You see, Tertullus needs to engage in flattery to gain the favor of the Roman authority. Paul knows he needs not engage in flattery because he already has the ultimate favor of the ultimate authority. What could the Roman authority offer him that he doesn't already have in Christ? When you understand your favor in Christ, when you understand you're a child of the king, you lose interest in man-centered favor. We just sung about it a moment ago. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What could the Roman authority offer him that he doesn't already have that and more in Christ? When you understand your favor in Christ, when you understand you're a child of the King, what possible gain is there when you already have maximum favor? After his greeting, he moves right into his defense. He says, stirring up riots? I can tell you, it's only been 12 days ago that I arrived in Jerusalem. How in the world could someone organize an insurrection in 12 days? He says, I went there to worship. I didn't even so much as get into an argument with anyone. So what they're saying, they can't corroborate. There's no evidence that I stirred up any sort of riot. And as to the charge of being a ringleader for the Nazarene sect, believe it or not, he doesn't flat out deny that charge. He says, they call it a sect, but I call it the way. And I want you to know something. I uphold the same law and the same prophets as they uphold, the very same ones. I also have the same hope in the resurrection as many of the men who accuse me. But here's the difference between them and me, he explains. And then Paul confesses that according to the way, according to the way, which was the early Christians, what they called their faith, the way, the word he uses there is the same word that Jesus claimed for himself in John 14, 6. I am the way, I am the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, what Paul is saying is that those of the way, those of the way enjoy and understand the direct continuity between the law and the prophets and Jesus Christ. Jesus is the means of access to God that the law and prophets bore witness to. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the law and the prophets. You call it a sect, he says, but I say it completes the sentence that the, the law and the prophets began. But lastly, Paul defends himself against the charge that he profaned the temple. And he says he was there to bring his people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. And the whole time he was there, no one bothered him. He didn't bother anyone. And moreover, the people who accused him of desecrating the temple, they're not even there. They're not even present. They're not even present to bring testimony to the charge that he did this. His accusers are not present. When you believe in the way, when you believe in the one who is the embodiment of truth, your accusers go away. They disappear. Nothing further, Your Honor. The defense rests. 
Now, here's what we should notice about Paul's defense. First of all, unlike Tertullus, he spoke the truth. He answered when spoken to, and when he, when he was spoken, he spoke the truth. Second, he spoke in love. And this one might be a little more difficult to see right off the surface. But he spoke reflect, uh, respectfully to the authority that was in place over him, not because he had fear for them, not because he was afraid of what they might do to him. It's well detailed all through the New Testament what sort of violence he faced for preaching the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 11, he gives us a list. He speaks of his imprisonments with the countless beatings and often near death. Five times, he says, I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And he goes on a while longer. So he's not physically afraid of what they might do to him. He has no fear in that regard, but he does have a godly fear of the authorities who stand above him. He treats the authorities above him with respect because authority, even imperfect authority, is a reflection of the ultimate authority above us. Every authority that stands above us is there by God's sovereign will. There is no one with authority that has God in heaven wringing his hands saying, what do I do about this? By his sovereign design, he places those in authority above us to teach us, to sanctify us, to teach us something about who we are in relation to who he is. There's not a moment wasted in your sanctification, not a moment. It's happening all the time, irrespective of who's in power. You're always being sanctified. All things work for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. Everything, everything. Paul speaks the truth in love, and, and this is who we are too. Yes, we speak the truth, and yes, we can defend ourselves. We can stand up and say, no, that's not true about me. That's inaccurate, and let me show you where you're wrong. And we do that, again, because we are reflections of the one who is the truth, but we do so in love. And that applies to everyone we encounter because everyone we encounter has been created in the image of God. Everyone you encounter has been created in the image of God. And when we are face to face with a fellow image bearer, we treat them with dignity and with the, with the truth because they are created in the image of God. We love our neighbor because we love God. After Paul completes his defense, the case is now in the hands of the judge. And after hearing the case, the governor finds himself in a dilemma. He couldn't convict Paul because, first of all, the, the, the tribune found no fault in him. And even the Sanhedrin, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, they found no fault in him because he confessed of the resurrection. He said, I believe the same thing you believe. And so the Pharisees said, let him go. But because there were still a substantial number of Jews who insisted he be punished or killed or imprisoned, and because he wanted the Jews to think favorably of him, he had no choice but to postpone the verdict, to kick the can down the road. He thought, you know what? I'm not going to release him now, though. At the very least, I should get some monetary gain from this. At the very least, I should get a bribe from this or something, but I can't just let him go. Felix's decision was indecision. He was stuck. He was imprisoned by his own indecision. Why was that? You see, this reminds me of someone else you might be familiar with in the Gospels. Do you remember the account of the rich young ruler? 
You can read him in about uh, three of the four Gospels you can read about him. And if we read the account in Mark chapter 10, we read that a man ran up to Jesus and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds with, why do you call me good? It's an odd response to what should be an easy question for Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus, just walk him through the sinner's prayer now, right? Just tell him, believe in me and we're done. But he says, no, why do you call me good? Why did he ask him that? Though the rich young ruler didn't realize it, Jesus was asking him a deeper question. He was asking him, who is your God? Jesus looked at him, we're told, loved him. He spoke the truth in love and said to him, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What's the most important thing in your life, young man? That's effectively what he's asking him. And because he loved his wealth more than anything else, we're told he walked away disheartened and he went away sorrowful. You see, he wanted it all. I want my wealth, I want all my things, and I want the kingdom of heaven too. I've got everything else, let me have this thing too. How can I get it? And Jesus said, no. He says, no, that won't do. I can't be one of the things. I have to be the only thing. And you see, this was Felix's dilemma too. He wanted it all. He wanted to please the Jews. He wanted to please the Romans. He wanted the power. He wanted the influence. And he wanted the money too. And he had Paul and kept him in prison for two years. And we're told that during those two years, he and his wife, Drusilla, they, they would come and talk to him about faith in Jesus Christ. But when he was pressed by the truth, Felix told Paul, no, go away. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear that. The gospel became too costly for, for, for Felix. He wanted it all. But God says, no, I, I can't be one of the many things. I have to be the only thing. And it froze him. We're told that Felix was eventually replaced, leaving Paul in prison as he left. He made no decision. Friends, you and I are faced with a similar dilemma. A similar dilemma. Each and every day, we're faced with the dilemma of, of pursuing all the things, all the things we can reach, but God's call to us remains the same. I've got to be the only thing. I've got to be the only thing. Everything in your life must revolve around me. I can't be one of the things. I've got to be the only thing. And when you reorder your life around in, in such a way that your life revolves around who He is, then and only then would we ever be able to find peace. What's the most important thing in your life? If you try and live your life with one foot in and one foot out of the life of Christ, indecision will eventually be the end of you. We see that time and time again all through the Scriptures. Reorder your life around the one who, insofar as the courtroom goes, is the primary witness. The primary witness who testifies on your behalf for your benefit and as he does, he doesn't say, what's in it for me? Instead, he stands before the Father in heaven, as we're told in Hebrews 7.25, that he stands before the Father in heaven and always lives to make intercession for us. He testifies for you. He stands before the Father and he said, this one's mine. Declare them righteous because I am righteous. 
And I've given my body and my blood for their sake. Because of that, because of his sacrifice for us, the judge declares not just not guilty, but he removes our sin and declares us righteous. Why wouldn't we reorient our lives around the one who does this for our sake? What better alternative is there? There is none. Reorder your life around the one who gave his life for yours. Join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we we thank you for the work of your son that he worked on our behalf and gave himself for us so so that when we stand before the judge, we we can stand before you accepted. And because of that, we, we ask that you send your Holy Spirit to help us reflect the love of Christ in all that we do. That we would speak truth in love without fear of consequence and we would no longer be paralyzed by indecision. Instead, help us to reorder our lives in such a way that, that reflects our identity as the sons and daughters of God that you've made us. And it's in Christ Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.